This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agapimatch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I answer your dating and relationship questions on the podcast and online. If you're not already following me, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Matchmaker Maria. And while you're at it, do not forget to follow this podcast at Ask a Matchmaker and also subscribe to this podcast. This way, every Wednesday when a new episode drops, you get it. This week's guest is author Kate Doty. Kate Doty is the author of Mergers and Acquisitions, or Everything I Know About Love I Learned on the Wedding Pages, her memoir of writing wedding announcements for the New York Times. She is a writer and former editor at the Times, where she covered the news of food, weddings, business, New York, and more. Her work has appeared in the Times, Southern Living, Our State Magazine, and other publications. She teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, from which she graduated. She lives with her family in Raleigh, North Carolina, where she is working on a novel. Another one, huh? Another one. <laughs> Welcome, Kate, to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. So here's how I heard about your book, which is really weird. I heard about your book two times in 24 hours from like unrelated people. Um, the Yeah. The first <laughs> one was um, a, a colleague of mine, another matchmaker, was like, have you heard of this book? I just ordered it, Mergers and Acquisitions, which immediately I'm like, tell me more like M&A about what? And then <laughs> and then you read the next title. It's like everything I learned writing, uh, what I learned on the wedding page. And I'm like, oh my God, yes, like let's let's go. And then, the, then within those like those 24 hours, I was interviewed on another podcast, uh, which is called a Blind Date with a Book. Uh, <gasps> If you're not listening to this podcast, it's an amazing podcast. Um, it's hosted by three women and it's like, um, I'll even include a link to their podcast. It's so good. But basically they set up their guest, like the blind date show. They talk about books and based on your question answers to some questions, they tell you like which book to read. And someone, um, had said, you know, you should consider mergers and acquisitions. Now mergers and acquisitions did not win the round for me. Right. Because. I, and I said, I said, mergers and acquisitions is going to be the first book I read because this is the most interesting. But if you're asking me what date I want to be on, I don't want to be on a date with someone that's in dating because <laughs> I do this all day. Like I'm going to read mergers and acquisitions because it's like work stuff. I'm not going to yeah. read mergers and acquisitions. Like if you're in dating, like, honestly, there's just no way that like the person that is, you know, I don't know giving the person who like helped me birth my babies is not watching Grey's Anatomy when they get home. No, no, absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll watch Grey's Anatomy. I won't miss an episode and I'm really waiting. I mean, gosh, when this episode comes out by then we'll know if Hunt's alive, spoiler alert, but you know, it's just, <laughs> do you watch Grey's? Am I the only one here? No, you might be the only one. I'm sorry. No, 18 years, man. It's, it's a, it's a commitment. Okay. No. So Kate, speaking of commitments, you write about commitments. Tell me, I mean, you look really young too. So tell me about how you even like, what, what does it take to get to the times? Did you immediately start writing for the wedding columns? Like what is, what is this movie that we're going to watch about your life in two years on Netflix? Um, well, first of all, thank you you're, uh, for saying I look young. I'm, I'm, how old am I? I'm 42, which is, um, young is as young does, I think. Um, so let me think. So I started at the Times right out of college, um, but it was truly a stroke of luck. It was not anything other than, um, you know, I uh, went to school, finished school, went to went on a trip um, after college, and then I got back and was living on my best friend's couch in Washington D.C. and um, like asleep, you know, keeping my clothes in a duffel bag. And um, the one of my old journalism teachers at the University of North Carolina. Um, emailed me and she said, there is a job in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. You should apply for it. And I thought, this is bonkers. I, I, what are you talking about? But it was a job answering the phones. 
And honestly, I think they hired me because I could show up to work the next day. Because they needed they needed somebody immediately. Cause to it's answer the phones. Yeah. Yes. Right. Wait, what did you study? You went to UNC as well? I did. Yeah. What did you yeah, study there? Journalism. Okay. All right. So, so my background was in journalism and I had had all these internships and, and, you know, I sort of followed that path and, and I thought I wanted to be a journalist, but also at 21, 22, you don't really know what you really no, want to be. Don't. And so I was having sort of an existential crisis mm. on my best friend's couch. Um, and then this job almost kind of fell in my lap, which is a story of exceptional privilege, I think in a lot of ways. But anyway, um, you know, I went to Ann Taylor and bought some black pants and um, bought a work bag at Nordstrom and showed up to work the next day. And then, I mean, the great thing about working at the New York Times when you're so young is it's a brutal atmosphere. It's a tough atmosphere, but it's a great one to learn in. And they need people to write, you know, like you're hired to answer the phones, but you're expected, especially as a young aspiring journalist, you're expecting to work and work and work and write in your spare time. I mean, I got to the Washington Bureau the year of, um, the sniper shootings. I don't oh, know if you remember God. those. Like, yeah. remember they were around like DC and Maryland. So and for those that, listening, cause there might be people oh, yeah. who are not old enough to remember this. Why don't you Probably. say it? Why don't you talk about you? You know, you're the reporter here, you're the journalist. Why don't you um, tell us what happened just in two so sentences? In, in 2002, a couple of guys were driving around um, the DC, Maryland, Northern Virginia area, um, shooting people in parking lots. Just random. Basically. Just completely, yes, random. completely random. Yes, and in like CVS parking lots, Home Depot parking lots, gas station parking lots, while right. people were getting gas, you know. And I forget how many people they killed. I think the guy I was ultimately killed. It was like eight people. It was a lot. It was a lot, and it was over. It wasn't yeah. over like one day. It was. I remember you guys just being in terror. Oh gosh, it was awful. And at that point in time, my dad's job—he was working for this construction management company. His job was to walk around gas station parking lots in the Northern Virginia area in a bright green, like, don't hit me, <laughs> like, traffic cop vest to make sure that all of the gas pumps were um, ADA compliant. And so he was literally, target. he was a walking target. And every yeah. time the phone rang and someone said, oh, another person's been shot, the first thing I did was call my dad, you know. Yeah. But anyway, because, <laughs> because of these sniper shootings and other things, there was always something to write about. Right. And so... I covered the sniper shootings. I covered the spelling bee, which was amazing. You know, I interviewed the um, president of Rwanda because no one else wanted to that day. So I said, sure, why not? I'll do it. The president um, of Rwanda. No one wants to interview him, but you got it. I, isn't that crazy? That is that crazy? Like, That's just mind blowing. You know what? It was because it was before Hotel Rwanda came out. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Like, you see what happened after that movie came out? It's like, oh, now we got to care more. Like, you know, I know. We didn't oh, care I, enough. I, I was... Oh my gosh! I know, I know. It was and it was it was Paul Kagame. I mean, the guy who do, who led the Tutsis right. and and did the Hutus. That's crazy! What a what a what a thing to put on your resume. By the way, you said spelling bees. You know what I realized three days ago that we are the only country with spelling bees because English is stupid as a language. <laughs> like in Greek, there would never be a spelling bee because it's like phonetically. I mean, okay, yes, there's a few variations of how you say the e sound. But there's also like certain rules of like when, you know, there's like six different ways to put an E sound in uh -huh. Greek, like different, um, there's three separate letters and six, uh, three different letter combinations with two letters each to make these certain sounds. And it's like, I don't know. It's just like, oh yeah, English is dumb. But yes. <laughs> well, the funny thing is I remember one, one year I covered the spelling bee and the, the um, winning word was boudin, which is French, or Cajun French, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, the blood sausage. And that was the, oh, there's a little teeny, he was this little teeny kid. God, he's 30 now, or 35 probably. But anyway, um, that was so much fun. I, and that was the sort of thing, like, when you're young and working at a big place like that, you get to do those really cool things. Yeah. They're really bizarre, under-the-radar things, because they don't fit into someone else's beat. Like, there's no reporter, you know, it's not like the congressional correspondent is going to sit, wake up and say, today I'm going to go cover the Scripps Howard National Spelling Bee, even though it's a thing that's important to thousands of people it and is. also get major clicks. Everybody loves the Spelling Bee. You know, everybody loves Everyone the likes baby. to feel a good story. Yes. Yes. I mean, gosh, yesterday the, the story was about what was it? What was the word? BDB boop or something like that? And the little kids started oh laughing. <laughs> and they kept laughing. <laughs> Beep, boop, beep. What was it? I, I, I certainly never heard of it. Oh, and he could not 
contain himself. So. Frankly, I couldn't be there. And the guy, um, anyway. So you anyway. got all this, um, before the age of 25, it seems, you seem to got, you seem to have had a lot of different experiences. What would lead of these experiences to you now writing, not only for the vows section, but like, so you just basically described you know, sniper shooting, spelling bees in, and, and Rwanda, right? So like, there's just, right. this, you have this, not only a variety of, you know, a diversity in, uh, not only just like ethnically, but socioeconomically, um, class, you know, different varieties of classes here that you just, you know, of just from these three examples, and I'm sure there's plenty that fit under the umbrella, but suddenly, yeah. at least from what I understood from reading your book, you are now writing about a certain class and that class I, I say this in general terms because to be in the new york times vows as you say in your book it's it's not just like oh you belong to the upper class it's the class that would even get covered by the new york times uh -huh. right it doesn't necessarily yeah. it's not it doesn't seem like it's only regulated to like the the upper class it there is this clickability of certain people to that of course they're gonna get covered by the times Yep. Yep. Totally. And, and, you know, David Brooks wrote a, a lot about this in his book years ago called Bobo's in Paradise. And he was, I read about him a little bit in the book. Um, you know, he was one of the first people to not talk about the, the pages as like the women's sports pages, like that's not that, but like to look at these pages as a real filtering mechanism for the way, for the new power classes in America. No, or not the new power classes, like the power classes have always been, always been in the pages of the New York Times, right? But they've evolved over the years, like who, like intellectual power, social capital, all the different types of capital that we look at on a daily basis, that stuff has evolved over the years, and so have the people in the Times to a certain extent. Now, I will say, any avid reader of the pages will probably have noticed that since the beginning of COVID, the announcements have changed drastically. In what way? And you, they're, well... You know, there aren't traditional announcements anymore. And from my understanding, there won't be anymore. There are lots of these, they're calling them mini vows. And there are lots of these stories. And they're longer. They're not the standard like Kate Doty and Michael McElroy were married Saturday at blah, blah, blah. You know, it's more of a, it's a more diverse mix um, in terms of who these people actually are, the types of relationships they're in. Um, their economic and social and political backgrounds are probably much more diverse than they were, you know, even two, three years ago. And a lot of that has to do with there's a new society. I, well, she's not the society editor. There's a new weddings editor there now who is a young black woman who grew up in the Times. And I think I'm betting she got to that position um, with the mandate to change it up or with the goal to change it up. And she really has. But what that means <laughs> is it's going to be even harder to get your announcement in the times now because you're but in competition with everyone versus this one class yeah. that would have traditionally received yeah so and even the so people that would have traditionally received now vows they're competing is what you're saying yes absolutely absolutely so, there's just so much your so many fewer slots now than there were kate in the beginning of your book you talk about what's in a wedding announcement would you grace mm -hmm. us with a quick reading about that well, let me put on my old lady glasses. Okay, uh, everyone, listen. She said she's 42, but if you saw her, you'd think she's 27. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Okay, all right. What's in a wedding announcement? After all, weddings will and do happen without one. In fact, most American nuptials, successful or not, go unnoticed by news organizations and unannounced, except on social media and the occasional church bulletin. But the weddings we wrote about for the Times, they were different. They were, generally speaking, wildly expensive, far beyond the average American expenditure of $44,000. But they were more than the sum of their gilded parts. They were mergers of families and bank accounts, of aspirations and hubris. And these announcements were battle plans and business plans of class and warfare. They were incredibly difficult to obtain, which meant that they were worth far more than the soy ink they were made of. They were expected by a certain set, and they were, above all, exclusive. If your wedding announcement was in the paper of record, then your marriage counted, and by proxy, so did you. That is, um, I feel like because this is right in the beginning of your book, it really sets the tone for everything else that comes after. And that's just that's just the first paragraph of that section. 
Like there's so much more that um, that Kate has written. So uh, again, the book is Mergers and Acquisitions or Everything I Know About Love I Learned on the Wedding Pages uh, by Kate Doty. Again, I will put the link in the show notes. All right. So so how old were you when you start? Well, not how old were you? Where, how far into your career were you when you got yourself now in this part of the world? Um, when I, when I went to the wedding announcements, Correct. is that what you mean? Okay. I was, uh, say it would have been 24. And were you um, dating? Were you married? I was in fact dating. I was dating the guy, um, I, I was dating a man who I had been dating on and off since college and he lived in New York and I lived in Washington and we'd had this sort of hot, steamy on and off thing for a while. And uh, I had been in uh, Washington about a year and a half and decided I just didn't, New York is where I wanted to be, you know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be there my entire life and it was time to go. And so I called uh, my supervisor who lived in New York and said, what can I do? And she said, well, the seasonal job is opening up. You know, we know you like to write, so here you go. And that's the funny thing that people, most people don't know is that the wedding announcements are not written. <laughs> They're written by clerks. They're written by people who were sort of at the, at the bottom of the feeding chain uh, or the food chain at the times. Um, or they're written by reporters who have done everything else and they just want sort of a cush job. You know, they, they want a day-to-day -day job and then they can go write their books. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but it was around March, it was uh, springtime, and um, I was moving up there. And March, of course, was the traditional marker of the old wedding season. Now, of course, the wedding season is year-round, basically. But submissions started getting heavy in March, and so they would always pull in a clerk for the season. And that clerk happened to be me. And so when they said, well, do you want to write the wedding announcements? I thought, why would I not? <laughs> yes, because, you know, I love weddings. I've always loved weddings, if what they mean, what they don't mean with the mark the signer you know all the signifiers all of the the class stuff and also just like pretty things but yes anyway to answer your question i was i was dating this guy um who turned out not to be for me in many many ways but i wanted to be with him i was 24 i had nothing else going on and so i packed my stuff in a duffel got on the cheap bus to brooklyn and there i landed and did do you think that this job affected that relationship or any future relationships like being it certainly informed it i would say um i mean the guy i, I was dating and it's this is all in the book it was it was our path was sorry our path that. was spelled out for us you know before i even got there but what it did help me realize and understand through interviewing all these different couples who were you know a week or two weeks out from the, what the biggest day of their lives together um it helped me understand and clarify for me what I did want and what I didn't want. Wow. Okay. And so that was that was a big deal. That was a big deal because you're rarely, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're trying to figure stuff out. You're trying to figure out who you are, who you want, what you want. All of these these formative things are happening in your 20s, which is one reason why I think that time period can be can feel like such a giant suck, <laughs> even though it's everybody has to go through it. You know, it's like middle school, but for adults. Yeah. Um, but. I had I talked to people who were making these giant decisions all day every day for months on end, and being at the tail end of a not wonderful relationship, like in the, in being at the beginning of a really great one that's go still going on today, um, talking to these couples and understanding why they chose that person um, was really helpful to me as you know as someone coming of age. When you were there, because you did say you did mention before that there's a new editor now, but when you were there, how did you choose? How how were couples? Did you choose what couples, or was your editor choosing on your behalf? That is the magic question. Um, it, when I was there, it was this really lovely man named Bob Woolitz, who has since left, but in the book his name is Ira, um, and Bob slash Ira had been in the position for gosh, fifteen years, I think, when I had gotten there. And he had a system. The admin, this really lovely Long Island lady named June, would print them all out, and she'd put them in front of his desk, and he would sit there, and he'd kind of lean back in his chair with a cup of coffee, and he'd flip through them one by one by one. And he had a slush pile that he would just immediately toss things into. And some of that slush pile was not like, oh, these people won't ever make the cut. It was, they're too late. You know, like, they, they, they're getting married in three days. We can't accommodate them, that sort of thing. Um people, he had sort of a sixth sense about when people were lying. 
that was a big thing. What would people be if lying you, about? Oh God, everything. Where they got, where they graduated from, how old they were, whether they'd been married before, who was marrying them. I mean, who they were descended from. Oh, like, wow. like so. If you, yeah, like for example, like I am descended. This is ridiculous. I am descended from a Mayflower passenger, right? This guy, Edward Doty. And of course, among this particular class, it's a big deal if you're descended from one of America's founding whatevers, except for the fact that Edward Doty was the first person, first white person to be put in the stocks in Plymouth Colony. So, you know, I think people tend to forget that <laughs> many of people who immigrated to this, to this piece of soil weren't of the finest sort. But anyway, um, people would lie about this, right? And so you had to... Um, you had to get them to prove their lineage. Like when people would write in and say, okay, well, I'm descended from John Webster or whatever. They probably didn't know that, well, you have to provide um, evidence that, or your confirmation that you're a member of the Mayflower Society and or like pages and pages of family Bibles and lineage documents and genealogy, all of this stuff is just so to have that one line in your wedding announcement right. saying like, provided as a descendant of John Webster or Edward Doty, as it were. Um, people lie about everything, but that was, um, I mean, there was one, it's in the book. I, have to, I can't remember the details exactly. It's in a notebook that's long been put up on the shelf, but I mean, there was somebody who had been practicing psychotherapy without a license wow. and, um, and this person, um, submitted their stuff to the times and said they had graduated from, I don't know, Harvard, you know, wherever. And so you have to independently verify all of that, like whether they went to Harvard, what you, do, you call the, um, not the admissions office, but the transcript office, whatever. And um, so you independently verify this stuff. And this person turned out to have lied about everything, including the fact that they had a license to practice therapy in the state of New York. Um, and I believe they referred that to the police. I believe so. That is nuts. Um, okay, and so you were then you were then assigned a wedding, and then what is what was that process? I know you explained the book, but you know for for the purpose of this podcast, um, yeah. what is the how does it like how does it roll out? You know, you how many couples are you working on at once, and mm -hmm. you know what are you attending? And also, when you were attending, are you being treated special, or are people ignoring yeah. you? Well, you try to stay, you try to blend in, but the bride and groom know exactly who you are. Although, and the funny thing is like they're in, you know, when you get married, you're in this state of, you're not thinking about much or you're thinking about everything. Um, but when you have a New York Times reporter at your wedding, I think that that kind of breaks you out a little bit of this like bubble of, it probably, it probably adds a layer of anxiety, I'm guessing, you know, just yeah. a little tiny bit like. I'm not just doing this in front of my family and friends and doing this in front of a journalist who is going to write about it for the New York Times, which, by the way, people ask for. I mean, it's not like we covered weddings without people asking. You right. Know, like they, they right. want to be there. But anyway, um, but in terms of how many we did, you know, at the high season, like June and September, you'd be doing 12, 13 a week, I guess. But most of these, I mean, you know, there's only one vows column a week, or there used to be now. Of course, there's, there's many more. And... Um, you so for the for the plain old like ple plebeian just the announcements, announcements that's announcement you'd start off and you'd have this oh, i wish i had it with me um you'd have this big piece of paper that bob marked up in his like signature red pen he wants you to check every fact but you call the bride and you would just go down the submission and you would say how do you spell your name how old are you what do you do and they would say, oh, I'm a vice president at, at Omnicom, or I do blah, blah, blah. Well, what is it that actually you do? Because one of the things that, <clears throat> pardon me, was really important to Bob in the desk was that, so these, these are news articles, right? Like, this is the documentation of a piece of small news that happened. It's not just a, a resume builder. It's not just something that comes up when you Google this person now. So... We looked at them as reportage pieces about about these people. So you can't just say, I'm a vice president of policy at Burson Marsteller. What is it you actually, how do you spend your days? Like, not necessarily what accounts do you work on, but like, do you help move money? Like, you know, I remember this one woman, she worked at Goldman or something, and she, <laughs> I asked her, what did you do? How did, why don't she spend her days? And she said, I assign QCIP numbers. And she was, and <laughs> 
inordinately, she was really proud. Like that was what she did. And then I had to Google what is a QCIP number. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. But um, so we, we wanted to be really clear about what these people did, how they made their money, how they spent their days. And I think actually within that woman's case, like where she assigns QCIP numbers was actually like in the wedding announcement, which is kind of strange. But anyway, so you call these people and then you would call the rabbi, the priest, the officiant and ask them sort of the same questions just to make sure that everything was above board. This person was actually performing the marriage. They don't know anything that we don't know about. Like, I don't know, you know, who knows? Like the, the depths of human deception, you know, there is no bottom with that, right? So maybe somebody's already married still. Maybe somebody's divorce isn't quite final. Maybe somebody has already been married and they're not telling us, but the rabbi would know or the priest would know because they've gone through counseling. Um, you know, there are all these things. And so you want to talk to the officiant to make sure that A, they're getting married when they say they're getting married, and B, there isn't anything about this couple that you don't already, that you need to know for the purpose of the announcement. Um, and then you would call the parents, which was very strange because some parents, sometimes these wedding announcements would be in the paper because the parents wanted them, not necessarily because the bride or the groom wanted like they Often the bride and grooms didn't care. It was the mothers-in-law. They were the, they were the fuel to this fire. Um, and then you would call, <laughs> then you would call their places of employment. Um, I called many, many HR departments on Wall Street, many, many times. Um, then you would call the enrollment and transcripts offices of their universities or colleges. And then you would put it all together in this in the format that the times wanted and um this took forever it felt like you would spend days you, you would spend hours on the phone asking the same questions over and over but the thing that i got to do with these couples was you know you're talking again you're talking to them like the week or two before the biggest event of their lives up until that point and you could really tell a lot about these people or during that time because they could either be bonkers they could be super happy like they're just so joyful like everything's cool you know the details are falling into place where they could be really they could be jerks they could be really unkind part of it is because they were to you or to mm -hmm. themselves to each other oh don't wait, wait, hold on to you or to like, each okay. other both both they um they could i remember talking to many grooms in particular who acted like they didn't have time for me. They didn't want to talk about their um, fiancés. And some of that, you know, it probably is natural reticence, right? Like, who is this person on the phone that's asking me these questions, these personal questions, like where I graduated and whatever. Um, but by the same token, you, again, you asked for your information to be included in the New York Times. And so you have to play ball with this, with these questions. And, you know, I, I found, I just found that so many of the people... Well, you make assumptions, right? Like you think, oh, the week before your wedding is the happiest week of your lives. No, it isn't. No, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. Sometimes it can be the giant suck. Um, but I just felt like I learned a lot about these couples and why they were doing what they were doing and why they were making those choices in the couple of weeks, you know, before they said they do. So the title of your book is called Mergers and Acquisitions. So I want to learn more about you know, where did you get this title from? I mean, you know, as you mentioned before when you were reading that this is more than just a wedding. It is mm -hmm. the the marriage of, you know, bank accounts, estates, all that stuff. Um, tell me more about that. Years ago, long before either of us were born, people called them the M&A pages. Oh, really? Along with, mm -hmm, along with the, the women's sports pages and all sorts of fun things like that but um you know one of the fun things i used to do was go down the, the internet rabbit hole and research these people who already had their wedding announcements in the paper or research famous people and quite often one of the first 10 links um for insert x famous you know financier here or famous feminist scholar for, for example um their announcement would have been in the times and i just felt like these wedding announcements um, have shown over the past 150 years um, the path of American money, the path of, a pair of American economic and social and political capital. And um, I just felt like there couldn't be any other, any other title for the book. The problem was the marketing department was like, well, 
how do we mar <laughs> how do we market a book about wedding announcements? It's called Mergers and Acquisitions because it's not the most Googleable title. But there is uh, I have a reading that I would be happy to do. Please. So in one of the fun things I got to do when I was writing this book was spend a lot of times in newspaper archives. And if you're a nerd, that's, you know, exactly where you want to spend a lot of your days. And the reason I um, had so much fun doing that is because I, I, you know, I love antiquities. I love learning about the way people used to live because it shows us, it gives us a huge window into the way that we live now. Um, and so here, let me just read this. This is about, this is, this will tell you why I called it M&A. Over the 19th century, Reports of weddings, parties, and social affairs became more entrenched in what newspapers were expected to provide their readers. By the 1880s, society journalism was well established, and society reporters thronged every major bridal event in New York. While old-line society families may have feigned horror at the infiltration of the dirty masses into their well-protected enclaves, they wanted that publicity to keep power. The write-ups of society weddings were, on their surface, details of wedding parties, veils, trousseaus from Paris, and wedding tours to the Riviera. But what they really signaled was a family merger, a connection made legal in the eyes of the church and state that consolidated social, political, and academic power between families. Consider, for example, the 1880 wedding of Miss Mary Virginia Smith, known as Jenny, to Fernando Iznaga. Miss Smith's, Miss Smith's sister, the former Alva Erskine Smith, was married to William Kissam Vanderbilt, a grandson of Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, See if you can keep track here. Whose father, William Henry Vanderbilt, in 1877, became the richest American after he took over the Commodore's fortune. At this point, the Vanderbilts were still considered interlopers by New York's upper crust, although they were fast on their way to being as rich as Croesus and as powerful as any Astor. In fact, when Caroline Shermerhorn Astor died, Alva, who by that point had dropped the Vanderbilt and married a Belmont of the Belmont Stakes, took her place as one of the leaders of the 400. Ward McAllister's list of the people in New York society who really mattered. Fernando Yuznaga, quite the man about town, <clears throat> was a Cuban sugar heir who knew what he was doing. Right after he married Miss Smith, he was awarded a seat on the New York Stock Exchange and a big job with a big banking firm. Presto, noted the Times. Is that news? Not really. Is it gossip? Absolutely. For decades and centuries, people, women really, have established, gained, and consolidated power through marriage, and wedding announcements bear that out. Edith Wharton knew that gossip was and is power, and those who hold the most knowledge hold the strings of power. Understanding bank balances and legal this and that is important, to be sure, but families are made and destroyed by the stories we tell, and wedding announcements are no different. Wow. So, again, I hope that makes No, it, it, makes, it makes perfect um, sense. And, I, you know, that's one of the, I think, grilling things in your book is that you do, you do still go back to history, you still go back to the archives, and, you know, it shows that this isn't new. It is interesting that, you know, earlier in the episode, you mentioned about how the editor has changed. There is more competition for the mm -hmm. M&As, if you will, to appear mm -hmm. if it's going to now just be more, um, and I don't know if this is the case, but like, a, uh, you know, the paper of record on a literal standpoint, not necessarily the paper of the class record. I, I, yeah, I totally agree. And I do feel like the new editor, a woman named Sharana Alexander, mm -hmm. who's lovely, by the way. Um, I think she's moving the pages in that direction. It is, you know, it's hopefully it's reflecting the way that we live now. Um, the way that American society is going, you know, in, in some ways it may be, <laughs> it may be creating a utopian view of American society where people of all genders and classes and, um, persuasions are accepted without, um, without guile or malice. Or without the disclaimer think... above either, you know, and, you know, exactly. what a, it, to me, you know, as someone who does read the vows and I'll admit, I, I read mostly the vows because of Selena who has is a, is a previous guest of the podcast. I, I have to remember which episode she was. I don't remember off the top of my head, but she's the woman who has New York Vows Twitter. Uh, she's she's uh, she does satire of the vows. <laughs> and it's a she's genius. She's really smart and sarcastic and um, and snarky. Uh, and I say this with much respect. Um, but what you know, from prior prior to like I remember when I got married 
And, you know, of course, you know, as a matchmaker, it would make my year to be, um, mm -hmm. to be validated. I know that sounds awful because I don't necessarily need validation for my own relationship. I love my relationship, but you know, you get right. pressure from everyone else too. Like, did you submit to the times? I'm like, yeah, of course I did. And, but my wedding is a destination wedding. So chances are they're not going to cover it, but wouldn't it be great if I even just got like the shout out or something like a shout out, you know what I mean? Like where you get the little announcement, you know, and, um, you know, no one, no one ever contacted us. And, but of course, you know, that week I'm going to open up the vows to see, okay, well, let me see who they picked instead. Uh -huh. And it was the week where like the woman, the, the, the main story of it all, it was that woman who walked down the aisle with a man who had the heart transplant from her father. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, <laughs> no, but how do you compete with that? I was just like, I was just like, what the, f you know, like I was, I was not, I was not, I was not upset. I was obviously, obviously that article, that, that whole wedding announcement, wedding story, vow story, mm -hmm. whatever, made me cry because that's emotional and that's incredible for her family to have that experience. But at the same time, I'm just right. like, all right, like you know whatever it doesn't matter you know like i don't need this anyway and you know whatever a week later it was funny a week later i was still featured in the new york times giving a quote about the male psyche but and i and my, my husband was like look maria they may not have covered your wedding but one day they will cover you and i was just like okay okay shut up like you know <laughs> And that well, weren't you in a piece like a couple of years ago about how matchmaking services were growing because of COVID? Or were I was I was trying? on that article, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so. Um, yeah, so that was uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. So you know, it's just it, it's always interesting to see like which couples. And then to to go back to that point now, right? I have look one of my girlfriends last year, she was featured in Vows, and I think her and her husband have a very interesting story. They're a very successful couple. They clearly support each other. They look like they're fun. Like, I love that they got featured. But I know other people that have been featured in the Times, and I'm just like, you are both dry as toast. Right? Like, even people that I've set up, right? I have never had the New York Times ever call me to be like, so did you set up this couple? Because there are couples that will say, oh, yeah, they met through a friend or they met through, it's usually a friend, okay. I think in all cases. I've had like maybe seven or eight couples get New York Times announcements that I've set up, but it's never like they met through a matchmaker. And I'm like, come on guys, it's like, what, what's going on? You know, that's funny. Cause remember they used to do, I don't, I guess I still do this. Like remember they would say like, oh, this couple met on G-Date yeah. or like, oh, they met on Match or oh, they met on eHarmony. And I, th I kind of wonder, I always wondered about that. Like, I remember JD was like a big thing when, when I was writing them. Um, does that even exist? It must. Yeah. It there's, there's also different ones. There's also like J swipe, but there's, I mean, like, I think now too, in 2022, online dating is not a big deal. Like, uh, you know, there's, mm -hmm. I, I, I could see where this happened, like 2008, where it's like, oh my God, you met someone through match.com. Say you oh, met really? through your friend, Marsha, you know, instead. So, you know, there's like this <laughs> other play here, but um, you know, I have met couples where I'm like, wow, you got featured by the New York times. You just work at like Goldman, your wife. Is, like, I, I'm not trying to tear down a couple, but I was just like, what is interesting about you? Your grandfather is interesting. And I was like, oh, but that's what it is. And then only having read your book, I was like, oh, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's because their grandfather founded standard oil, which is not, you know, that's not true, but um, yes, I, I interviewed so many people who I had the same question. I was like, why are you here? Because there's a certain type in the, and there's a, a bit in the book about this. So there's all the couples, every single person in the book is a real person, except for there's a couple in there named Mitzi and Trey and Mitzi and Trey are amalgams of like the white financier couples who all ended up moving to Connecticut anyway that I wrote about on a weekly basis because there are always two or three of those couples and you were like you're I wrote about you last week and I wrote about you then the, the you know like it's basically like like same song second verse right and not to not to, again not to tear down these people like they're all people with individual lives and and whatever but we all fit into stereotypes in some way shape or form and this is one of them um the like but often these people, it was because, you know, their grandfather's name was on a building in Manhattan 
or they were descended from, you know, whoever who, you know, for whom the town of Stratford was named in Connecticut, like that sort of thing. So it, it really had nothing, it had less to do with who they were and more that they had the chutzpah, I guess, to put in all of their lineage. I have some really important questions that these are just my curiosity now. So first question, what would you wear to the weddings? All black. All black? But like, are you wearing like a dress or are you wearing like yes. a nice pantsuit? Uh -huh. Um, I look terrible in pants, uh, to be honest, I'm only five feet tall. So I would always wear, um, like I would wear skirts, boots, tights, and a black sweater. And like, I would just try and stick to the back and stay as, um, you know, as, as anonymous as possible. Like I would never, I mean, I went to several really super fancy weddings, but I would never wear like a ball, I, you know, I would never dress for the occasion. I was always like, I try to sort of blend in with the wait staff, right. honestly. And sense. where are you, are you eating at the weddings or? Mm -mm. Okay. Nope. Nope. You never, I was looked upon any offer of food or drink at the wedding as a gift. And as a journalist, you don't accept gifts okay. from your subject. Did they know so. that beforehand? Did they know that the couples? They knew that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, we would talk about it. I mean, cause you know, you want it if you have like another 250 bucks to plunk down. Um, but often I also like when people were eating, I would step out of the tent uh, you know, I would leave the, the venue, um, and I, also, I always would have eaten beforehand. Um, there, were, there was one wedding at the end, I read about this in the book, where, like, I had a single glass of champagne um, with the officiant at the end of the wedding. A, because this officiant was incredibly famous, and I thought, why would I not do this? And second of all, like, I had completed my reporting. Like, I was done, you know. I was done. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just tried to be as much of a fly on the wall as I possibly could. And like have you ever met a couple, I know, I know I'm not the only one thinking this, so I'm going to just ask it for all of us. Have you ever mm -hmm. met a couple you're like, why are you getting married? Oh my God. Tell oh, me yeah. everything. This is, this is my, like, this is my, because people ask me that question all the time. Like they'll ask me like, tell me about your worst client. I go, I don't have, I have some problematic clients, but like, if I think mm -hmm. someone's like a psychopath from the beginning, I'm just not going to take them on as a client. Right? But don't think for like a, a second, I don't like figure out like, oh, that psycho is marrying someone. Like, tell me about yeah. that marriage. You know, like, what does that look like? Yeah. So yeah. W w at what point would you like figure out like, oh, no. There were, yes, there were many. I mean, every week, like the reporters uh, or the people who wrote the wedding announcements would get together and you would say, well, there's these, there's this couple, you know, I, maybe they'll make it. And I kind of learned that my instincts were mostly wrong about like, like there was this one couple that um, I wrote a vows column for and I wish I could publicly share the circumstances of how they met because, but I can't because I would get sued. Um, anyway, suffice it to say they hadn't been, they had not been dating that long and they got married in a really bizarre way. And um, I just remember watching this, I was standing there with the photographer and we both were like, what is happening here? But they're still married, according to social media. And this was 18 years ago. Um, they're still like happy as clams, it sounds like. And then there was this other couple um, who the man, he was like, he's like a commodities trader or something. And the woman had been a lesbian until that point. Like she had only dated women. And this was 20 years or 18 years, something like that, you know decades ago and it was really hard for the copy desk to figure out how to write that she had dated women without saying she was a, like they didn't want to say the word lesbian so anyway they fell in love and got married and I remember thinking there's no way this is gonna work because this guy he came off as a deeply unpleasant person and this is a woman who had been like working in human rights her entire career. She smelled like patchouli, honestly. Like, I mean, it was a total case of opposites attract in almost every way you could come up with. But they're still married. They got kids, and I think they live somewhere in the United States still. So um, all this goes to show that like I'm wrong <laughs> about people quite often. Um, there are some. I had some couples who the guy would be such an ass that I would get off the phone and, and um, like almost want to call the woman and say run, which you would never do that ever. I would of course never do that. But yes, there were definitely people I thought. And, but then, you know, you meet the people who are equal jerks and you think, you know what, you're meant to be together, you know, mazel tov. So 
Let me think if there are any other people. Kate, this is so like spicy. <laughs> um, and um, have you had people, I'm sure you have, but like, have you had people that have divorced? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, do they ask like couple. the New York Times to like scrub it off digital media? Yes, they do. And the Times doesn't. And the Times does because, not. No, because, uh, you know, as I said, they, it's a piece of reportage. It's a news article like any other news article. And the Times doesn't remove news articles, generally speaking. Um, I can't think of any instances to my knowledge. Um, they will append editor's notes, but they're never going to go back to a wedding announcement and say, these people are now divorced. <laughs> because that... <laughs> That, new, that article, that wedding announcement is supposed to be a snapshot in time. You know, it's like a daily article about like, it has this, it, it has the same merit as an article about a house fire. You know, you're reporting right. the events of that day. Um, so I had one couple who, um, the guy had been cheating on the woman there uh, for the last several months of their relationship. And she found out on their wedding night. <gasps> like, <laughs> and she called me from where they were honeymoon, or they, they had a destination wedding to get married somewhere in the Caribbean. And she called me on Monday and said, can you please remove my wedding announcement? And this is why. And I remember just getting like on, like on fire with anger for her. Cause she was a really nice person. Um, I mean, not that you can't have be angry on someone's behalf. I wish people could see no. my face. Like, <laughs> My jaw has been on the floor this entire time. Like what? So <laughs> yes, with her, with their friend who was in the wedding party. No. Have you ever seen any, like when you would go to these weddings, um, have you ever seen any like drama unfold before your eyes? Like, or are people more performative because you're there? They're more performative um, because I'm there. And I also really preferred, and this is maybe not the best journalist, journalistic instinct, but I really preferred to stay away from them when some real sh stuff was about to go down, you know? Because, like, I've been in that, you know, like the moments before your wedding, like, you don't need or want anybody else in that room with you other than, like, you, your sp your future spouse, and the officiant, right? right? Um I went to one wedding where um, the, the couple, they were so drunk um, beforehand and they were trying to sign the ketubah and they were like having a hard time doing it because they were just so hammered. And I was like, I don't, this is not part of the story. You know, this is, this is an interesting and amusing to me, but it's not part of the vow story. Like you're not, I would never have written like, you know, these people were so drunk they could barely, you know, hold their hands straight to sign the ketubah. Um, so, yeah. 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 I mean, I never like walked in on, you know, the groom having sex with a member of the wait staff or anything like that. Uh, maybe, maybe it'll be in the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, that's so, um, that's so interesting though. Like that, you know, you get to experience these things and it seems like you're really busy on the weekends in the summer when you were working. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I should be like, I should be clear. Most of the stuff I did, um, was during the week and the weddings I went to, um, they were mostly in the, the spring and fall. And there are also lots of other vows writers. So, you know, right. there was one woman who, um, you know, Lois Smith Brady started the whole enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, she's like the vows writer emeritus. And she wrote a book called Love Lessons years and years ago about um, about writing the vows, starting and writing the vows column. But, um, yeah, it was for a new, for a young journalist, especially someone at the beginning of a relationship, um, there was like no better training ground for journalism, for life, for being partnered, you know, all the, all the good things. So the good things. to go back now, you said, you know, the rest of the title of your book is, or everything I know about love, I learn on the wedding pages. So what are your three biggest takeaways about love having done the vows? Mm, mm, that's a good question. I don't know, my husband hates when I say this because he, he looks, he sort of thinks I'm, downplaying the success of our marriage, but, um, I, I think that people need to realize that happily ever after is, is, you know, it's a story, the story we like to tell ourselves. Right. But I think that there is always joy to be had and there's always joy in the horizon with the right person. And maybe that is the fairy tale. Maybe it's just another way of, of talking about it. Um, you know, 
know, I met my husband right after this guy I was dating uh, left the country. When the first season I was writing the wedding announcements and we were friends first and, you know, as I document in the book, you know, <laughs> our relationship had its ups and downs and, and, you know, continues to have its ups and downs because we're two individuals. Um, but, um, you know, it is a stroke of luck unlike any I've ever had. So that's a good thing. Um, number two, the most important day of your life is not the weird wedding day. It's the day after when it all really starts. You know, the wedding day is fun and champagne and it's expensive and it's bonkers. But the morning when you wake up, if you've gone to sleep, you know, when your marriage actually begins, I think that's more important. And number three is, um, I don't know, I've been married, it feels like forever, though, you know, 11 years is actually not that long. But I think one thing we try and do in our relationship is always get to yes. You know, like figure out how we can expand our lives together. And I think that love is supposed to be like, the good kind of love is expansive. You know, it, it welcomes everybody, it welcomes all circumstances. You know, even the circumstances that you don't want, you know, like somebody dying, you know, somebody dying or whatever, like it welcomes and survives these circumstances. And so I think that the way that you build that kind of love and trust is that you always keep your arms open, even when all you want to do is run out the door. So I think getting to yes is a really important part. Kate, that was so beautifully put. And I want to thank you for sharing <laughs> your takeaways your, um, on that. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you. Um, again, the book is called Mergers and Acquisitions or Everything I Know About Love I Learned on the Wedding Pages by Kate Doty. Kate, thank you so much for joining me on the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. And where can people find you if they want to? I mean, I will include a link to your book. Um, is there anywhere else? Are you on social media where people can find you and talk to you? I am. Um, my, you can visit my website, katedoty.com. I'm also active on Twitter and Instagram. Both handles are Kate Doty. And please reach out. I love to hear from readers, truly. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you'd like to speak to me on an upcoming hotline episode, don't forget to follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria. I post links there in my stories. And when we can talk one-on-one, -on -one, you click it and we get to talk. Until then, you can learn more about what I do or enroll in upcoming Agabi intensive by visiting agabimatch.com slash services. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.